Welcome to Lo-Fi Lectionary. Hey everyone, and welcome to Lo-Fi Lectionary, the Bible story podcast for the spiritually curious and the religiously burned out, I think I got that right, and... Something evil's watching over you, coming from the sky above, and there's nothing you can do. Prepare to strike, there's no place to run, when you're caught within the grip of the evil Unicron. That was that was for my son. Anyway, uh, welcome to Lo-Fi Electionary, the uh, kitchen episode for Luke 17. Kitchen episodes, we have kind of a more... Um, a little, you might say it's a little more intimate, a little closer conversation about the the same Bible text that we had the regular Luke 17 episode about, and uh, where I kind of share more of my personal thoughts in the the hope and dream that you will also uh, get in touch and share your personal thoughts about this text as well. Um, real quick before we get in, uh, a couple uh, other segments. Uh, we have uh, we have a sponsor. Uh, our sponsor this week is tea. Have you been thirsty and been drinking some water? And thought, you know, this water would be better if it had a little bit of dirt in it. But not bad dirt, like a good kind of dirt. Then, my friend, I encourage you to reach out to today's sponsor and drink some tea. There are four types of tea. Did you know there's black, green, white, oolong? Whatever it is, you're going to love it. From tassiographers to tax protesters, if you look in the slot bowl of thirsty folks around the globe, you'll find tea. Thank you, tea, for helping us out this week. And, um... Now, as we continue on, uh, I want to share a couple of Kevin's picks with you. Here's a new segment. Pew, 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 Kevin's picks. Um, there's a, a couple, couple things that I've just loved over the last couple weeks that I wanted to share with you. One of them is a new podcast. Uh, a buddy of mine, Charlie, has a podcast called American Heretic, and it's fantastic. He What he does is he uh, takes questions about science or philosophy or faith or the Bible uh, religion in general from folks. And then he just tries to answer them as best he can. And what's great about Charlie is he's vulnerable and kind of humble enough to, to express when he doesn't know something, he, he's pretty fair to all sides of, of, of a way of answering a question. And he's really smart and very, very well read as well. So if you're, if, if you like my podcast at all, I think you'll love his podcast as well. So go um, check it. I mean, keep listening to, to mine, please. But uh, I think you'll really like American Heretic as well. The other thing, uh, Kevin's picks number two, the Stir Crazy Popcorn Machine. You can get this thing at Target. We made a, a household lifestyle upgrade a couple weeks ago. We bought a popcorn machine. It has those little metal arms that stir the popcorn on the bottom. And I was like, yeah, this will just be fun, you know, like to, to show the kid how popcorn is made because you can see it through the bowl. But oh my goodness, you guys, this popcorn is way better than microwave popcorn. And uh, I, what I did ahead of time was I, this, here's a little tip. So what I did was I browned a bunch of butter ahead of time, or kind of clarified, kind of browned, and then just put it in a mason jar and keep it in the fridge. And then when I need popcorn topping, I just microwave a couple of tablespoons, pour it over the giant bowl. It's delicious, you guys. Anyway, those are Kevin's picks for the week. Let's go ahead and uh, jump into uh, talking about Luke 17. Now, um... You know, Luke 17 uh, kind of pairs really closely to Luke 16. So a lot of the things that I've been pondering and mulling over over the last few, uh, like the last week or so about Luke 17 really connect with, with Luke 16. And I think we've talked about this a little bit on the podcast before, but what uh, these two chapters back to back really made me think about is just how much anxiety a lot of us, um, particularly those of us who grew up in religious households, have about um, the afterlife, 
what you might call the end times, you know, the apocalypse, you know, stuff like that. Um, we have tremendous, I think, anxiety about our futures. I don't think you have to be religious to be have a lot of anxiety about your future, but it particularly comes out with those of us who believe in some sort of religious narrative from a tradition that has been handed on to us. And And what's interesting is that a lot of people I meet who even aren't like currently active religious, like they're not like part of a church, you know, or anything like that. I find that when I chat with them, sometimes they still have this same anxiety lingering if they grew up in a religious system. Um, even amongst church circles, amongst us pastors and ministers, uh, we find that when people as when people as they get older, like if they stop going to church when they're a teenager or they're a college student or a young adult or something like that, often when they have kids, sometimes they'll start coming to church again or they'll like at least send their kids. And sometimes this is out of a genuine, like, I want my kid to be raised in a certain way or, or to, to, to be, like, have some sort of moral code or direction in the world or something like that. But often it's also out of a, a kind of vague, underlying, low-level or high-level anxiety they have about the future. And so they kind of cover their bases with their children by sending them to church. Um, you know, it's, well, if this whole heaven thing is real, I want my kid to get in, so I'll send them. <laughs> you know, kind of, kind of thinking. And I think that that's so interesting. Um, and as I think about our, our, our anxiety over this, I think people tend to have kind of a common response. Like you can read texts from in places like Luke 16, 17, where Jesus, you know, has this, this parable about this, this rich man and this poor man that go off to differing afterlives based on their behavior, you know, or, um, then him following it up in Luke 17 with the millstone passage, you know, it's, it'd be better, you know, you'll be judged for your mistakes so much that it would be better for you to have a giant, huge stone that's bigger than you tied to your, around you, and you'd be thrown into, you know, the, the deepest, darkest, chaotic ocean. Um, that we read those texts, and we'll often then read, you know, the same passages where there's a lot of mercy and grace and favor, you know, even immediately in Luke 17, we talked about that in the last episode, that Luke, Jesus follows this judgmental teaching with this teaching about forgiveness where it has to be seven times, your forgiveness has to be complete. And even if the behavior doesn't change, if people seek your forgiveness, you have to give it. And if that's what God is like, then what do we make of those judgment passages? And and, and often when we try and balance those and figure those out, we, we often, a lot of us, maybe it's a particular personality type, um, it's hard for us to hear and believe like the mercy part is the more real part and that maybe the judgment is something that's more real that we always have to be worried about. Um, or else we're going to get, we're going to smote and smitten, you know, <laughs> um, smited. Um, and I think people often have one of, of kind of two responses when they think about this stuff. Uh, one is they, they read all these passages where there's some judgment or some fear or some unease about the future and they take on that unease and they take on that anxiety and their response is to alleviate the anxiety. They want to figure it all out. And that leads to a lot of bad thinking because if you want to figure something out, you usually are trying to read something very literally. And unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, but unfortunately for these folks, uh, when we are looking at passages in the Bible that talk about like the afterlife or talk about God's judgment or talk about stuff like that, it's almost a hundred percent of the time, always in some sort of poetry metaphor, uh, complicated imagery system, you know, that we get in apocalyptic literature, stuff like that. And it's when you try and then read that, turn that all into like a literal 
reading it like a science textbook, reading it like a like a step by step manual, something like that. It leads you down some really crazy rabbit holes, and so um, you could see that in a lot of bad religious art. Um, so I grew up evangelical in the American Evangelical Church, and when I was a kid, there was like whole series of books about the end times. And some of them would be, would be, you know, quote unquote, nonfiction would be like a guy or a lady, like read the Bible a whole bunch and then wrote a book like, ah, I figured out, I figured out the, the code. Like, like we know when, um, you know, the particular date or time this, these, these, these apocalyptic events are supposed to happen. And if we know when it's going to happen, we can be ready for it. Because if we're not exactly ready in the exact particular way that we believe that God is wanting us to be ready, we're going to miss it. Cause God's just going to be like, well, technicality, sorry, you're out, you know, or something like that. And so we need to figure it all out and put lots of study and time into it. Or on the other side, there would be fictional books where people would write like novels and stuff like that about people experiencing you know, the end of days, like people experiencing either God's judgment or reward, people experiencing, you know, the return of Christ or the rapture or things like that. And um, most of it's really, really bad. (laughs) It's just done really poorly. Not only is it just bad writing a lot of it in a sense, but the theology also behind it is really bad because it doesn't really, it it, it makes mountains out of molehills and not just regular molehills, like poetic molehills. And we don't read it as poetry or the imagery or parable, or something first, you often end up leading to really, really bad ideas that these authors of these stories and these images and stuff like that never intended us to have. Um, and so that's how you end up with like Kirk Cameron and Nicolas Cage working together to make a movie about which people are going to survive God's judgment and which people aren't, if that makes sense. That's how you end up with ideas like the rapture, which aren't even really totally in the Bible in the first place. Um, but, uh, and it's all because we're trying to live out of this like anxiety over having to figure out what we need to be doing to survive or make it through or be rewarded by God in the end times. That's, that's, that's one response to try and figure it out. The other response is to just live with that anxiety and to kind of freak out about it. And we, those people are usually the consumers of all the bad art of the people that figure it out. It's like, we will go and rampantly buy and read everything and watch the movies and read the books and stuff like that, because we want to figure out how do we give ourselves the right kind of like insurance now, the right kind of, how do we build up the right amount of, of reward. So that way, when, when, when things go down and the poop hits the fan, like that God will be good to us instead of bad to us, punishing of us, having to face the consequences of our mistakes or mistakes we haven't even done just the way the world is. And these are all these, both of these responses come out of an anxiety that's birthed when we only hear the judgment parts of the story and not the mercy. And yet it's an interesting human tendency that what's bad or makes us afraid is a lot easier to stick in our hearts and our brains than what's good and reassuring and life-giving. So it's, it's, you may have heard about this before, but there's um, this theory that I've heard commonly called like the, uh, the, the Velcro Teflon uh, concept of how our brains work in neurology. So if we hear some criticism or we hear something negative or we hear something that clues us into something to be afraid of, those things stick in our brains like Velcro, just like, like right onto it, like hard to pull off. Um, and yet if we hear something positive, if we hear something encouraging, if we hear something reassuring, stuff like that, those things stick to our brains, like as if our brains are made of Teflon. Like they just kind of, it's non-stick. They just slide 
right off so easily. And so commonly it's said something like it takes like 10 positive comments for one to overcome like one negative comment. It takes 10 positive experiences to overcome one negative experience because our brain is wired like evolutionarily to be like, oh, we need to figure out the things that we need to be afraid of because we need to survive. Like hunter-gatherer society, like the, the, the Velcro brain worked for those people really, really well. And yet today, like we find so many of us walking around with always like heavy anxiety, depression, fear, um, social isolation, you know, like all this stuff. And some of it can be just traced back to we've we've had a few really traumatic experiences that have stuck to our brains like superglue and like Velcro. And it takes a lot of positive experiences to rule those out. And so when we read the biblical text and right next to each other, there's one story that's like where Jesus is like, yeah, it's going to be pretty bad for some people. Like, so please don't do these things, you know. And then if he follows that up with, oh, but forgiveness is always there. Like, the one comment about forgiveness does not overcome in our brains the one comment about judgment. We need 10 stories about Jesus being forgiving to really overcome the anxiety that we receive from the one story about judgment. Don't we? And so that's really tough. And so what do we do with this anxiety? And so that's why, again, I love reading the Bible when it's a story. I mean, so there's other parts in the Bible. There's there's songs and there's wisdom sayings, you know, and stuff like that. But when we get a story, I love remembering first to read it just as a story. Because, okay, Luke presents us with a story where he's like, okay, the God comes down, like the God, the Son of God, whatever you want to call it, like comes to earth and is born as a human being, right? And so you can you can step back and look at this story of, of the whole book of Luke. as one long story about this is Luke saying, this is what happens, everyone, when God comes to earth. And you can ask interesting questions like, well, how does God spend his time? How does God spend her time on earth when God comes as a human being? So you can look at how Jesus spends his time and be like, well, that's what God does when when God is here. And so looking at the story, we get a couple stories about Jesus's birth and we get one story in Luke about him as a child. And then we get nothing until he's what, 30, 33 years old, somewhere around there, we think. Um, what's he doing? Like, what is Jesus spending all his time doing? Like, like if God shared the same kind of fear and anxiety about the world that we do, why does he wait so long to actually get working? I mean, if Jesus believed that everyone, so many people he met, most people he met were headed to a fiery torment in hell, unless they did this, this, or this, like X, Y, Z, like unless they followed these steps, unless they followed this particular prayer, something like that. Why does he waste so many years doing nothing as far as we know? And so then we have to ask, okay, if if Jesus believes that most people are going to, after they die, be taken away (laughs) to a pit of fire, And he doesn't do more than kind of what we got that he did? Stop that? Does that make him good? Or something else? And it, and if we look at all his teachings that we do get in the book of Luke, Jesus doesn't talk about the end. 
the afterlife, the end times, the judgment, you know, or whatever. He doesn't talk about heaven, even the good side of the afterlife much at all, right? He's not an afterlife guy. Whenever Jesus does talk about the afterlife, it's almost always metaphor or poetry or parable. And these things are always kind of mixed. It's almost like he kind of almost refutes his own tone sometimes with his follow-up teachings. So he gives a, a parable about judgment and then a kind of poetic ethical lesson that involves some judgment. But then he gives some very direct teaching, literal teaching about forgiveness and mercy. And so it's always kind of mixed in it kind of goofy. And if, if Jesus didn't think that this was something he needed to be absolutely clear about, because most people are headed to, again towards some sort of fiery torment or something like that, what's he doing? I mean, is Jesus being tricky on purpose? I wonder, like if Jesus isn't a big end times guy, but whenever he's asked about it, he gives like a, a poetic image, you know, that's, that has mixed imagery in it. That doesn't really exactly make sense. It's hard to understand. Um, that doesn't iron out very well. Is he maybe kind of conf- leaving it confusing on purpose, not to egg us on to figure it out, but actually to discourage us, I wonder, from wasting a lot of time trying to figure it out. Is he like, you guys, this is not the right question. It's a bad question. It's a distraction. So here's a couple like little poetic things so you can kind of understand the character of God or the character of what we're doing in the world or or realize what you're doing right now that's wrong or whatever. But don't waste your time. It's not a useful focus trying to figure it all out. And for me, like coming to this realization and looking at this, the Jesus story that way was a real big deal. Because again, the religion I grew up in said everything we did centers first on what we think is coming in the afterlife. Like, like we lived like in a future backwards kind of narrative Whereas it's like, well, the most important thing to do is to get to heaven. And then the most important thing to do is to help and make sure other people get to heaven. So we have to figure out a system that we can create, that we can carry, like a product that we can carry around to help people and help us get to heaven most. And so we are a future, like, oriented. But realizing that Jesus was kind of the opposite, that he was so present-oriented that he kind of dismissed a lot of talk about the future, it's kind of mind-blowing to me. Um, I mean, I grew up in a culture where if you were in a rock and roll band and you called yourself a Christian and you went and played concerts, there would be a certain amount of the Christian audience that would be disappointed with you if sometime in your concert, in your rock and roll, metal, punk rock, whatever, alternative grunge bands concert, you didn't stop the show and like share a Bible text and talk about it in order to encourage and persuade people to joining your religion. Like there are even bands that felt pressured to give like what we call an altar call. Like at the, at some point in their, in their concert, like inviting people to pray a certain prayer so that way they could, their soul could be saved. So that way when they died, they could go to heaven. Like there would, and and if, and if bands didn't do that, they got criticism (laughs) from like this weird religious subculture of just like, you're not doing God's will. You're not, you're not doing your, your job right. It's, don't just make it, you know, and in fact, all of your art, your lyrics is like that should be about only religious things kind of oriented towards this evangelistic mission of saving souls, you know, stuff like that. It's, it's very strange that we lived so future oriented and we obsessed over the afterlife and built so much of our spirituality and theology around that. And 
as I got older, I got to, I, I started to hear a bunch of other voices that, that pointed a different way and gave good warnings about like, well, guys, if you, if you look at the world this way, that it's all about avoiding some sort of horrible hell or about winning some sort of great heaven. And life is all and only really about that, that, that theology, that way of looking at the world leads to some pretty awful things. I mean, colonization had a religious fervor behind it of we need to save these people from hell. And so it's okay that we will go and we will take their land and colonize them and civilize them in a certain way. Like the way that we treat the created world and the environment has consequences if you think that this world doesn't matter. That what only matters is some otherworldly thing that we're going to go to. Our souls are going to be detached from our body and we're going to float up to in the future. Then you can go ahead and treat this world like garbage. And yet if we have a present-oriented theology, we're like, oh no, what we're doing right now like, might have consequences for the future. Like our, our actions right now extend to eternity. But it's, it's more about what we're doing right now. How are we treating our world right now? How are we treating others right now? Like, there's a certain re- kind of religion that is so future-focused that they'll settle with horrible poverty conditions for other people in the world. They'll be okay, in a certain sense, with people being hungry or sick or cold or homeless. Because what's more important is that we communicate these people a gospel package that will save their soul for heaven than actually taking care of the soul that we're encountering right now. And so there's really dangerous things about thinking where should most of our focus of our time and the focus of our energy and our work in the world be centered. And we need to be careful because however we answer that, we can end up justifying some pretty horrible things in order to reach our goal. And if our goal is just saving souls and giving people like insurance out of hell, then you might be willing to put up with and allow a lot of pretty terrible things to happen in the world. There's a a, a Catholic uh, priest that I really enjoy. Um, his name is Richard Rohr. Um, that's another Kevin's pick. You can go find his uh, podcasts of his um, homilies, his little sermons um, from their church services. When he does them, they put them up. He's really, really good. Got a lot of rated great books. If you want a recommendation, I'll send them to you. Um, but he has this, uh, he, he, he shot this out the other day. The gospel is not an evacuation plan to heaven, but a transformation plan for earth. So to, to decode that language just a little bit, if you're not super religious, when we say gospel, it's, 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 it's kind of a, it goes back to a Greek word that means good news. Um, so the good news of the Christian way, the good news that Jesus has to offer, isn't that he's offering us all an evacuation plan to get to heaven one day after we die. But he's offering us the good news of a transformation plan for earth that actually works, that actually creates more good than bad, that doesn't ignore horrible things, but actually can go and engage them. That Jesus's way in the world is so present-oriented that it's all about transforming what we're doing now, not building ourselves the right cocoon to be transformed and to float away in the future. And when I read that quote from Richard Rohr, I was just like, I, I see that a lot in Jesus' teachings, particularly in Luke 16 and 17. It is about now. Like the kingdom is among you, Jesus says. It's not coming one day. It's, it's right here already. 
And so when I think about Jesus, reading this as a story, I'm amazed that Jesus doesn't share the same kind of end-time, afterlife, judgment, anxiety that I've had most of my life. Like, I've lived with it. I've lived in fear a lot of my life and worry. And Jesus doesn't seem to have that. And again, I wonder if that's because Jesus has a better theology of God than I do. Because my theology says that God could get tired of me at any point, or no matter how much good I do, God could be like, and no matter how many times I ask for forgiveness or repent or try and change and do my best, God could be like, well, you did this and this and this, and those are on the no-no list. So you are condemned to a fiery place of torment for eternity. And Jesus, even when he talks about judgment, follows it up with mercy, he seems to have a very different and more developed and more positive sense of who God is than I do. And I have to sit and wonder sometimes when I get to texts like this and be like, what does Jesus believe about God that's different than what I believe? And do I think his belief is probably closer or better than mine? And this is why we talk about this often in Lo-Fi Lectionary, the character of God. We ask it in one of our Lo-Fi questions every week. But the character and personality of God matters when we're reading these biblical texts. And when we're engaging in theological discussion, I mean, every theological discussion should almost start and end with, what is God like? And is God good? Because if so, that's going to shape the entire discussion from then on out. And so when we read the book of Luke, we get this long story where Luke is saying, oh my gosh, I believe that God came to earth and lived. And this is, let me tell you what God did to tell you what God is like. And Jesus just goes around showing love and favor to everyone. He's a friend to sinners and outcasts. He lifts up people who are low socially, economically, physically, mentally, spiritually. He celebrates goodness and faith and gratitude and humility whenever he can. When people come and repent, he celebrates that. He doesn't turn them away because they haven't done it right. He's willing to forgive as many times as needed until the forgiveness is complete. It seems like Jesus is so trusting in the goodness of God's character that Jesus isn't super worried about the future. And he's not even super worried even in the present. We don't don't get Jesus characterized as being someone who tirelessly and effortlessly and anxiously is running from town to town trying to use the very limited time he believes he has to turn the whole entire world around to save it because it's all headed towards some sort of fiery destruction. In fact, there's some times when he seems to take it slow. He goes to parties. He eats and he drinks. He enjoys a lot of life, it seems like, in the book of Luke. And he often gets accused of that. Instead of just doing the quote-unquote religious thing every time, he, he hangs out. And that's really interesting because, again, I grew up in a religion that it was like, oh, no, no, you shouldn't rest. You should work tirelessly towards this. And yet when I read the story of Jesus and Luke, I'm like, oh, he, he's known for eating and drinking with sinners. You know, he didn't preach every moment he had. In fact, sometimes he doesn't even preach until someone brings him a question. And usually it's the religious people. Jesus doesn't seem worried about some sort of eternal torment that's coming for all of us. 
But we, we do get stories and glimpses of it here, but it's always, again, followed up with stories of his mercy. And so as we extend the story of Luke on, I have to then start to ask myself the question, when Jesus does bring up judgment, is it something that's actually only temporary because he hasn't completed his work yet? That actually might finish doing the work on our behalf of reconciling and restoring the world for us, that which we are a part of. And then here's another interesting twist. Jesus also doesn't even seem worried about getting a reward for his goodness. So you can have the anxiety about avoiding punishment. Then a lot of there's there's a different flip of the side of religious anxiety where we're all like so anxious about like wanting to earn God's special, special love, like to be his special, special children, you know, like to get a gold star when we die. Like there's there's some other passages elsewhere in the Bible where it talks about like, um, you know, getting a reward or receiving a crown in heaven. You know what I mean? Like if we do the work well, we get a crown when we go to heaven. Like like some of us will, will kind of just make it in like right before the elevator door closes. But some of us will be in and we get a, we get a better deal. Like we get golden crowns. You know what I mean? And Jesus doesn't seem anxious about that either. In fact, here in Luke 16 and 17, when the disciples ask for more faith to be superheroes of his followers, to do more good in the world, you know, and to be, you know, super followers and super disciples and stuff like that. He's actually, nah, don't even go down that road, you guys. It's not about earning a reward or doing amazing things to prove yourself. You only need a little tiny mustard seed. That's all you need. And just like servants and slaves don't expect a reward for doing the work They just kind of view it as, well, that's their lot in life. That's their job. That's what they're required to do. Guys, whatever faith you have and whatever work you do, don't do it for a reward. Do it because it's good and it's the right thing to do. Isn't that interesting? Like, it's not about building up as much treasure as possible, but doing tiny little things so that we were a part of the right way. Jesus doesn't seem as anxious as I am about avoiding God's punishment or about pleasing a God who's hard to please and earning some sort of prize. In fact, if you look at the whole Jesus story, the prize is just us for him. And the prize for us is just him. And that's kind of it. Interesting stuff that these stories leave us with. So if we ever did have a fun conversation, if we sat down together and, and drank some tea um, and had a conversation about some sort of an afterlife or the end of the world or how it's all going to go down, if we wanted to look at all the Bible texts and figure out, you know, how we think it's going to work as best we can because we thought decided that would be a good idea for some reason or whatever, our whole scheme has to start and end with this question of, is God good? And whatever system we come up with, whatever we think the steps are, whatever the timeline or the narrative, however we think the end of the world is going to work out, if there is an end to the world at all, whatever we come up with, for what happens to people before and after they die, if it doesn't also properly answer the question, is God good? If it doesn't fit with God's character, then we need to go back and redraft what we think the system and the story is. Because if we end up with a system where in the end it looks like God is a monster instead of good, we have not read 
the Bible text the way Luke intends us to read it. And maybe that's a good place to start with alleviating our anxiety, because maybe we don't know what's going to happen. But we know that God, but maybe we believe and trust that God is good. I mean, maybe that's what Jesus is up to all along. He's like, I'm going to paint, I'm, I'm going to confuse the heck out of you guys. I'm going to, no, let's go ahead and say, I'm going to confuse the hell out of you guys. And I'm going to be very straight and clear about the love and goodness and favor. That's a t-shirt. Let's confuse the hell out of each other. <laughs> Little file lectionary, confusing the hell out of people every week. <laughs> um, and so maybe that will lead us to a place where we don't feel inclined to get caught up in the hysteria of the end times or of afterlife or of judgment or reward. And maybe it'll lead us back to a place where we're no longer focused on that and figuring it out and spending so much of our time and energy and spirituality trying to defend ourselves or prove ourselves from a future. It'll leave us with so many resources, so much time, so much energy, so many dollars even, that we can do amazing and important work right now. That would be nice. So, my friends, my loafers, may you have better work to do today. Thanks for listening, you guys. Have a great week. Hi, everyone. I just want to say a quick thank you to you for listening to this episode of Lo-Fi Lectionary. If you liked the podcast, please help us out. You can review, subscribe, and share the podcast any way you can. Um, the more people we get in on the game, the funner this is going to be. Uh, if you want to participate in the discussion for this episode, you can come visit our website at kevinlester.net and follow the links to the podcast and then to the link for this episode. Um, you can also find our podcast on Facebook, and we can discuss and, and keep things going on there. Uh, just search Facebook for Lo-Fi Lectionary, and you'll find us. You can also get in touch with me, Kevin, directly at lofi at kevinlester.net, and that's lofi with no dash, so L-O-F-I at kevinlester.net. And you can also find me on Twitter at lofi kevin with no dash again, so at lofi kevin. Um, that's kind of it. So thank you for coming, and we'll see you guys next episode. Thank you for listening.